Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, archaeologist Abigail Levitt continues sharing the evidence she has unearthed about Mount Ebal and Joshua's altar. New Year means new opportunities to meet you in person at one of our upcoming events. When you visit the events page of our website, swrc.com, you'll find our schedule, complete with speakers and topics. We have events this year in Wichita, Kansas, Tri-Cities, Tennessee, and Gettysburg. Our first event of the new year will take place February 16th and 17th in the Tampa Bay, Florida area. Is America in Bible prophecy? Find out from Donald Perkins. The latest details on the march toward a one-world system will be revealed. Biblical mysteries will be uncovered, and you'll learn how to have true spiritual victory in the invisible war on the saints. Biblical artifacts from Israel will be on display with an archaeologist ready to answer your questions. Tickets for this special event are free, but seating is limited. Don't be left behind. Register today. Friday and Saturday, February 16th and 17th at Hicks Road Baptist Church. Call 1-800-652-1144 for more information or visit the events page at swrc.com. Now, here's Clayton Van Huss with today's guest. Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall. I'm your host today, Clayton Van Huss, and we are visiting with Abigail Levitt, archaeologist and author of the book, The Elbernaut Structures, Joshua's Altar. We talked yesterday a little bit about biblical archaeology, about what it is, and we talked a little bit about this fascinating structure that has been found on Mount Ebal in Israel. Abigail, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be back. Great. Okay, so before we get into this amazing find, we kind of teased yesterday that there was an amazing find, and mm-hmm. you were part of that. Before mm-hmm. we get into that, people have a lot of questions about biblical archaeology. And one of those questions is, sometimes I'm reading a book, a textbook, or a Bible commentary, and it will say that a thing happened. Well, let's just take the Exodus, for example. Some scholars will say that it happened in this year, like 1446 B.C., while another says it happened Mm -hmm. around 1260 or whenever. And so there are biblical scholars who disagree on dates. Why why Mm -hmm. is that? Doesn't the Bible tell us when these things happened? The Bible gives a lot of a lot of numbers and a lot of years, and so we can actually kind of do the math and figure it out. It says that Solomon built the temple in the the 490th year after the Exodus, and so we can calculate back because the building of the Solomon's temple is pretty well established in ancient history. So, so we can calculate and do the math, and it takes us to about 1406 BC for the arrival in the Promised Land, 1446, for the Exodus. And so, so we can do the math and come up with that date. But in the early 1900s, archaeologists began coming across a problem is that they weren't seeing evidence of destruction layers of the Israelite conquest during the time that they thought it should happen, but they were finding later destruction layers. And so they looked at this evidence and they thought, maybe we've got the date wrong. Maybe Maybe we need to rethink this. Maybe that 480 years is symbolic. Maybe it means a shorter period of time. And so they started messing with the dates to try to make it work with what they thought they were seeing archaeologically. And so that's kind of how the late date came about. 
also influenced by the fact that the the text says that the Israelites were building Ramses, but Ramses is a later pharaoh who had a city built. And so they were trying to work with the evidence and see if they could make the Bible fit the evidence, which I think is generally a dangerous thing to do. The problem with that, then, is that as they excavated more, they found out there actually aren't that many destruction layers that match the biblical sites of the conquest. At that later date, they thought that they would that they were starting to find that, but they didn't actually. And so that actually kind of messed up that late date theory. It's just this process of trying to figure out, okay, here's the evidence, or what we think we're seeing is the evidence. How does this fit with the Bible? And so, so there are different ideas. And sometimes it's actually good to pursue different ideas and see what works and what doesn't. The problem is when you hold too fast to a theory and then it doesn't work, that kind of lands you in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. So another thing that can land you in trouble, we hear as believers a lot of people making sensational Mm -hmm. claims about Mm -hmm. archaeological finds. Never mind Mm -hmm. that these finds are not made by archaeologists. That's a whole other thing. We're not going to name names, but there are all Mm -hmm. sorts of biblical artifacts that have supposedly been found, but there's no evidence Mm -hmm. behind them. If I hear something sensational, if someone says, well, I found this object, this artifact that belonged to David, mm-hmm. I found David's sling. Okay, how, mm-hmm. do we, how do we discern whether that's true? How do we look at that? One thing that's really important in archaeology is publishing finds. There's a proper way to do this. You publish in a peer-reviewed journal article so that other other archaeologists who are experts in, in this field can look at what you're writing and say, yes, you've got this right, or no, you're totally off base, like you're forgetting about something or, or this that affects it. And so you get this feedback from these reviewers, and then you have to a- adapt your article. Not necessarily, I mean, you don't change what you found, but you, you, have, to, you have to look at other research and see what, what people have already studied, what they've come up with. There are typologies for finds where you can compare it to finds from other sites and figure it out. And so when you publish in a peer-reviewed journal, this gives credibility to your find because people know that it's been checked by people who are experts who know what they're talking about. They'll take that with, with more authority than something that, that's not published in a peer-reviewed paper. And then what happens after that, though, is other people discuss it in peer-reviewed papers. And so You'll publish this find, and someone will, will publish something and say, no, I don't think it's what you said it is. I think it's this. And then you write a response, and, and different people weigh in. And so you can look at this, this find that's, that's discussed by the academic community. Maybe they don't end up agreeing on it. Maybe there's some disagreement in the end. But at least you know that, that these people who have studied, they know their stuff, that they have weighed in on it. And you can read their views instead of going through that process. If somebody goes out and they say they find something and they just bring it back and write maybe a popular book or they talk about it in churches, I, that's great, but there's no way for you then to check it out and see whether it's actually a real thing, whether, whether anybody has studied it on a scientific level. So that really leaves you in a position where you can't, you can't double-check it. You just have to take somebody's word for it. I think that's where it's dangerous because, unfortunately— there are people who are just out for fame and glory and maybe money who will happily claim to have found anything you want them to find as long as you'll give them some money or something. 
unfortunately, yeah, maybe there's not too many of them, but th- there are those kind of people out there. Yeah, and that is that is a great point. It's a good segue because you are a scholar. For those who didn't hear yesterday, Abigail studying in Israel, working on her PhD, and of course you're you're working on Israel emerging there in the the late bronze, early iron period, where we first see them coming into the land. Speaking of peer reviewed, we teased mm-hmm. yesterday an exciting find at the altar on Mount Ebal. So, which mm-hmm. is, of course, what your book is about. Your book is about the altar. Mm-hmm. It's the Elbernot structure, Joshua's altar. This is a, a fascinating topic. Tell us what happened in 2019. So, in 2019, we got a chance to go through the dump piles from the excavation. So, as we talked about before, the site was excavated in the 1980s. Adam Zertal excavated it. And when you dig, you're digging up dirt and then you have to dump it somewhere. So he made these dump piles. And we've recently been working on perfecting a new archaeological technique called wet sifting, where basically you wash, sounds funny, but you're going to wash dirt, um, but to get, to get the dirt that's clinging to tiny artifacts. And so when you're just digging, you would miss them because they just look like a dirt clod. But when you wash them, suddenly you begin seeing things. And so we got a chance to take his dump piles, this is stuff he'd already excavated, and we washed it. And so we found a lot of small items that he had missed. It's not that he was a bad archaeologist, it's just that he didn't have this technique that we now use. And so one of the things that we found was a square lead tablet. We recognized it. Frankie Snyder is the one who found it. She has been wet sifting longer than any of us, and so she she knows her stuff. Some people might have missed it. It almost looked like a little rock. but she picked it up and she knew from the weight right away that it was lead. It was heavy. And so that was a find. And we knew that it was a lead tablet. And we knew that in antiquity, lead tablets have inscriptions on them. This is a, this is a thing. And so we wanted to read the inscription, but it was folded and we couldn't get it open without breaking it. And so we had this long process of getting it scanned. Found out that you can actually scan lead. We didn't know that was possible. So we learned some new things. And in the end, a team of epigraphers was able to come up with what they think is a correct interpretation of the writing on the inside of the tablet. And so, yes, that recently came out in a peer-reviewed journal article. And now, of course, there is the the back and forth. Um, mm-hmm. A few new articles have just come out in the last few weeks, really, arguing, coming up with other ideas of what this might be. And of course, they're critical and, you know, one never likes to have their find criticized. But at the same time, it's good to have people coming up with other ideas and thinking this through, and hopefully eventually we'll kind of come to a consensus on on what it is. But if the original team, my team and the epigraphers that we worked with, if our findings are correct, this is a really important find. It's an important find. Why? Why is a little lead tablet important? What was inside of it? The inscription that, that the team deciphered is a bunch of curses. It's something like, cursed, cursed by Yahweh. Cursed by the God Yahweh, you will surely die. Cursed, cursed, cursed. It's not a nice inscription, and it's, it's actually written kind of in poetic form. So, so it's almost like this, this really nasty poem. But the reason that it's important is that it dates to the time of Joshua, and it matches what we know of the ceremony. Mount Ebal was the mountain of the curse, where the Israelites pronounced all these curses, these bad things that were going to happen to them if they disobeyed God. And so this tablet may very well be part of that ceremony. It mentions the Israelite God, Yahweh. It's these curses that just matches exactly what we read about this ceremony on Mount Ebal. 
So if this is the case, then this is one of the, well, one of the earliest Hebrew inscriptions ever found, and probably one of the earliest direct evidences of a biblical event in, in inscriptional form. I think it's, it's very highly important. Yeah, the stakes are very high on this. Um, mm-hmm. The alphabet inside is um, older than Paleo-Hebrew. This is one that, that what has been found in Egypt and Sinai, and it's been argued, is it Canaanite, is it Hebrew, is it you know, Phoenician, which is just more Canaanites? You know, mm-hmm. who, who is this? But right. if we find the sacred name of God, that points to Israelite, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. This lead tablet, this is a known mm-hmm. thing. The, these tablets exist. They're found in sacred mm-hmm. sites. And the writing on this one just happens to be older than, well, older than old, going all mm-hmm. the way back to that era of the Exodus and the conquest. Yeah. So let's yeah. talk a little bit about your book. You were involved mm-hmm. in the, the wet sifting project there. So you have yeah. firsthand experience on the mountain, correct? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about, about the site, about what, what you did there and how you interpret that site. I wasn't, of course, part of the original excavation. I was back in the 1980s when I was quite young. But being able to go to that site, I visited it multiple times, and we were able to take that, the dump piles and sift those. And so I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of the site as much as I can. Unfortunately, Adam Zertal, who excavated the site, he never published a final excavation report before he passed away. So there is information from the excavation that we just don't have right now. He published some articles, some preliminary reports. Based on all the publications that we had available and based on my own experience working at the site on the sifting project, what I did is I analyzed the archaeology at the site and I analyzed the biblical text. I looked at both of those. So I analyzed both both the archaeology and the biblical, basically the biblical requirements. Like, what does a site need to have in order to qualify as Joshua's altar on Mount Ebal? So I looked at every little detail that the Bible provided, that, you know, the altar was made of unhewn stones, that he wrote, Joshua wrote the law on plaster. All of these things, just little hints that maybe in a a normal reading of that passage you might overlook. But I tried to pick up on all of these things that the Bible said about Joshua's altar. And then I looked at the archaeology to see what we could find, and whether whether the site matched or not. Like, is this Joshua's altar? That was my big question. And so I looked at both. We talked before about how there's two structures, one built on top of the other, replacing it. And so I looked at the dating of each of those. When when was each one built? Which one matches better with, with the time that Joshua was there? So I just went through detail by detail, because I think that this is really important, that that we understand when we're looking at archaeology, does this match? Does this support the biblical text? Is this what we're thinking it is? Is it not? Because we want to be really careful when we're looking at archaeology. Of course we want to look for evidence of biblical events. That's just a really cool thing to do. But we want to make sure we're getting it right. Sure, and it's important to understand, you know, you just learned so many things that that can help you with future studies about the, the mm-hmm. subject. So a quick little thing that's in the book that I, f- I find fascinating. There's a wall mm-hmm. that's built around this structure, and this wall yeah. has a shape. What is that shape, and what do you think that that's about? 
Yeah, so there's this wall, it's, it's a stone wall, not like a full height wall, but more more of just a divider, so maybe two or three feet high, marking this area. And it's shaped like a footprint. If you were to look at it from an aerial view, like from a drone or an airplane, or even climb up higher on the mountain and look down on it, you can see that it's it's shaped like like a sandal sandal footprint. And the interesting thing is that this isn't the only site that that's shaped like that. We find, um, I think there's at least six of these sites in the region. So there's been a lot of speculation about what this is, what it represents. And some people have correlated it to the passage, and I don't remember the reference offhand, but where God tells the Israelites that wherever they put the sole of their foot, he's going to give them that land. And so maybe they're literally making footprints out with these stone walls, claiming the land. And then some people have equated this with Gilgal, because one of the problems when you read through the biblical text is you see that the Israelites are camping at Gilgal, but it seems to move. Like, normally you would think, Gilgal, this is a place name, this belongs to a place, but we see that it's down near Jericho, and then it seems to be up near Mount Ebal, and so it seems like Gilgal moves. So maybe instead of being a place name, maybe Gilgal is what they name their camp, and so their camp can move with them, and maybe they're building a, a new footprint shape as kind of their central location wherever they move in camp. So it's an interesting theory that's kind of been discussed. And I don't know if we've come to any consensus on this, but I think it's a really interesting idea. It is. It is. And that's, and that's Joshua 1-3. Wherever you okay. put the sole of your foot, that's your land. And so I think that's mm-hmm. really cool. And you point that out, and, and you had some diagrams of the different ones in your book. Mm-hmm. So um, as, as our time is coming to an end today, of course, we're talking with Abigail Levitt, the author of The Elbernaut Structure, um, Joshua's Altar, this amazing discovery there, and she, she gives all sorts of great archaeological evidence. If I'm, if I'm a lay person in the church, and I'm, I'm not real mm-hmm. studied up on biblical archaeology, but I happen to read your book, how is mm-hmm. it going to help me? Will it help me to better understand Scripture? Will it help me in discussions with others? How is this going to help me as a believer to read your book? I think that, you know, when you start looking at the archaeology, and especially the way I, I line this out, looking, looking at the text first to see what exactly does the text say, because a lot of times we read our own interpretation into it based on our own culture, but if we look really carefully, what does the text say, and then we look at the archaeology and we start making those connections, I think that it really helps with the understanding that, yes, this really happened, it's real, like I could go there and see it, because a lot of times we can read the Bible as long ago and far away, almost in a fairy tale sense, but, but it's actually real. It actually happened. There's evidence of it. And so I think that that really helps with reading the Bible and it almost coming alive like, this is a real thing. This isn't long ago and far away in that sense. It, I mean, yes, it was, but, but it, it really happened. Real people, real places real events. Excellent. So the book will, will help you with that understanding. I want to say one thing about Abigail before we finish up today. I was recently at a conference, an archaeological conference at the Eastern uh, Theological Society Conference, and Abigail was a speaker, and the archaeologist who got up after her, Dr. Doug Petrovich, he's been on the program before, he told the, uh, the audience, Abigail left the room, and he said, 
Abigail is the rising star in biblical archaeology. He said, if you want to meet the next big person in biblical archaeology, get to know Abigail. And I think he's right. I think you're, you're moving to great things. Well, thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Thank you, Abigail, for being here. Abigail, archaeologist, biblical archaeologist, author of The Elbernot Structures, Joshua's Altar. You can find that at swrc.com in our bookstore. Thank you once again, Abigail, for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. The book of Joshua records a ceremony of blessings and curses that the Israelites held on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim shortly after they arrived in the Promised Land. Abigail Levitt's book, Joshua's Altar, provides a thorough analysis of Joshua's altar by examining Mount Ebal and altars in the Bible, and then by analyzing biblical references to Joshua's Mount Ebal altar to determine the exact biblical specifications of that altar. This fascinating book then discusses the surveys and archaeological work that have taken place on Mount Ebal, including examining the claim to have found Joshua's altar. Order the book, Joshua's Altar, today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. You can also order on our website, swrc.com. Joshua's Altar by archaeologist Abigail Levitt. 1-800-652-1144. Now it's time for Living in Today's World with author and pastor Greg Patton. So as we look at the new year, let's adopt this. Let's do more in 24. What do you think? Friend, I'd like you to take a moment right now and ask yourself, what is really guiding my life? How do you operate? How do you form desires for things in life? How do you make decisions on a daily basis? Are you led by a mental perspective, by your feelings? Maybe you're led by another person. Those motivations are all very common, but they won't lead you to a healthy, growing spiritual life in 2024. Nor Are they what God really wants for you? Think about it. God wants you to live according to only one thing, the relationship that you have with Him, the one who gives you strength and clarity and guidance in life. If you'll heed to Him, trust Him, make His will your very own. He's going to lead you flawlessly into every area of your life this year. Do you recall how God led the Hebrews out of Egypt and into the Promised Land? Well, that journey should have taken several weeks, but instead, oh, 40 years. Why was that? It's simply because they didn't live by God's guidance. They became fearful, rebellious, doubtful, and because of that, a generation died in the desert before God's people entered the land. They'd been promised. We can have a different outcome this year if we keep our eyes on the Lord. Now, something people have asked me about over the years is, How do I follow God? How do I really do that? How do I know the will of God? Many believers think it's some sort of a mystery, but it isn't. There are things that you can, indeed you must do, to live according to God's guidance each day. Let's consider how to walk in step with the Lord today. First, you need to meditate on the Word of God. That is vital. In the wilderness, the Hebrews didn't have God's Word preserved and accessible, but we do today. Later in Israel, David wrote, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119, verse 105. God's word will ensure that you get in the right place, right step, right time for every situation you're going to face this year. No matter what you're going through, Scripture will direct, if you read it, 
Stay familiar with it and keep it foremost in your thoughts. Memorize it. And second, you've got to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit of God, are you? Before Jesus ascended the Father, he promised to send his disciples a helper. The Holy Spirit would come to indwell every believer. When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, Jesus said, he's going to guide you into all truth. That's John 16, 13. You have someone living within you right now who will guide you according to the will of God in all things. But it's necessary to pay attention, spend time in prayer, in order to be sensitive to his voice. And then third, wait for the timing of God. I'm so impatient. How about you? Here's something that's been especially meaningful to me over the years. From days of old, they have not heard or perceived by ear a God beside you who acts in behalf of one who waits for him, waits for him. Isaiah 64, 4. You know, sometimes God makes you wait, not only for his actions, but also for his guidance. And patient in prayers is essential if you want to hear what God's desire is for you this year. Number four, follow him even when you don't understand and you get closer to God in the valleys than you ever do on the mountaintop. It can be difficult to follow God when, well, the Lord, when you don't understand why he's guiding you in a particular way. But God does not require you to understand his will, does it? No, you're to obey his will, even when it seems unreasonable. My wife adopted this as her verse soon after she was saved, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he makes you a promise. He will direct your path. He'll make your path straight. Doesn't this sound good, my friend? Oh, and finally, you got to be strong and courageous in him. You and I are wimps without God. To walk in the spirit of God requires deep conviction and courage to resist all those pressures. And in this new America, this new world, things are happening so fast you can't keep up resisting all of that stuff. The world is full of external influences that can pull you away from God. Don't let it happen. Your very flesh and Satan and his demons do everything they can this year to get you away from God. And your own heart may even have a greater temptation as a result. Decide today, decide today for 2024 to live by the guidance of God, no matter what he says or where he leads you. I'm going to follow. Remember what he told Joshua as the Hebrews were finally about to enter the promised land? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 1.9 God is with you today. I hope you follow him throughout 2024, my friend. I'm Greg Patton. This has been a part of Living in Today's World. And from Southwest Radio Church Ministries, we wish you the very best this year. Let's do more in 24. Abigail Levitt's book entitled Joshua's Altar provides a thorough analysis of Joshua's altar by examining Mount Ebal and altars in the Bible. This fascinating book discusses the surveys and archaeological work that have taken place on Mount Ebal. Order Joshua's Altar today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. You can also order at our website swrc.com. Lord willing, we'll be back here Monday 
ready to once again bring clarity to the chaos. Head into the weekend, my friends, with the encouragement that God is still on the throne and prayer changes things. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners just like you. Please visit our website, swrc.com. That's swrc.com.